welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the topics that matter most across Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Sarah Bartnika. And I'm Taylor Scollin. Taylor, you were just in Vancouver. I was. So you actually, did you see the Port of Vancouver? I did, actually, yeah. So you saw the supply chain in action. I did. It was very impressive. (laughs) Uh, And I don't think it's even that big of a port, you know, relative to some of them that we have in this continent, but it, it was very impressive. Tons of containers and boats and cranes and yeah. Yeah. I feel like a real nerd in Vancouver because you'll do like the seawall walk and you're enjoying the ocean and the sights, but it's like also just kind of crazy to see that port in action just because for us, like we're writing the newsletter every single day, we're talking about the news and so much of the news was so focused on Vancouver ports and mm the supply chain and really how those delays were then impacting how the rest of Canada was getting its goods. So it's always fun to check out the port and see how it's doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like supply chains are something that I never thought about. And I think most people didn't really think about until COVID and the pandemic. Uh, and since then, I've thought about them a lot. Yeah. We're, it's become a part of our daily life, you know? A hundred percent, especially with everything that's happened uh, in the last couple of months when you look at disruptions um, in the Red Sea, in the Panama Canal. I mean, supply chains are on top of a lot of people's minds. I think that never previously would have thought that they'd be thinking about supply chains For so sure. much, including us. Uh, and with all this talk about supply chains and disruptions and how or if we're recovering from the delays that we saw even during the pandemic, I thought it would be good to have an expert on to talk us through it. Polly Mitchell-Guthrie is the VP of Industry Outreach and Thought Leadership at Canaxis. It's an AI-driven supply management software company. Previously, she was Director of Analytical Consulting Services at the University of North Carolina Healthcare System. Polly, thank you so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Thrilled to be here today. Let's start with an overview, a very simple overview how do global supply chains work and why is it important for the global economy that they work well? Well, as our CEO likes to say, supply chains date back to the dawn of humanity. Like literally, how do I trade my sharpened stick for uh, uh, your meat that you that you hunted? And, and, they, and if we take them writ large to the world today, it's how do we get the goods that we all need? So supply chains are really about how do we get the right stuff to the right place at the right time? And so how do we get... Uh, Toilet paper, puzzles, cereal, uh, car parts, whatever it is that you need, uh, all the way to you at the right time. Um, and that, that is, entails more complexity than it sounds like. So you have to, in order to do that, you have to think about things. Well, how much are people going to buy? And then how do we predict what people were going to buy? And then uh, what are the, all the raw materials we need to, or parts we need to make that thing? And then where do they come from? And, uh, how are we sourcing in a way that's responsible? There's increasing attention on that. And then what manufacturing capacity do we have in order to make that? And where do we make the stuff? And then uh, how do we deliver it and get it to people? And what what do we manage the trade-off of, of fewer um, uh, getting closer to the customer or fewer centralized distribution centers? Those are all the kinds of things that supply chains have to think about. And shipping is certainly part of that. The average newsreader wouldn't have heard a lot about supply chains before the disruptions uh, around the pandemic, uh, and certainly with some of the things that we're seeing now uh, in the Red Sea and the Panama Canal. What are the biggest supply chain disruptions that you're seeing right now? So certainly the Red Sea is getting a lot of attention, and I think what's getting a little less attention is the Panama Canal, and they're very related, uh, in fact, because... Let's start with the Red Sea. Okay, let's start with the Red Sea. So... We have these rebels that are trying to disrupt the passage through the Suez Canal 
in order to address their geopolitical aims that they uh, that they are concerned about in terms of uh, some international support for Israel and what's happening in Palestine. And it's a very complicated geopolitical situation. The supply chain impact is that rebels are trying to attack ships in order to get attention. When they attack those ships and uh, major companies that carry big freight are saying, we're not going to go through that passage anymore because of our uh, employees on the boats will be at risk. And if they don't go through there, the alternatives are things like, okay, let's sail around the Cape of Good Hope, which adds 10 days to your trip and, and additional expense. Let's go through the Panama Canal, which is another problem because that uh, route is facing issues because of drought. And so there's a there's been a, a drought, uh, arguably due to climate change, that means that there's less water in the canal. So fewer ships, normally 36 ships can go through there a day. We're now down to 24, and we're entering the dry season. That's expected to get worse. And if you hmm. can't go around, uh, if you're looking at the alternative of sending more traffic to the Panama Canal because we can't go through the Red Sea, but the Panama Canal can take less traffic, you see the kind of problem we have. So where does that leave businesses? I guess what's, what businesses are hurting the most, what sectors are hurting the most? Where are we seeing the ripple effects from this? There's no singular answer to that, but like oil and gas is a big product that flows through the Red Sea because of their, the proximity to the uh, Middle East, you know, oil and gas uh, refineries or, you know, produ- production. And so that's, that's a big issue and particularly affecting uh, energy in, in Europe. Automotive is actually a, a sector that's having significant impacts. In fact, Volvo and Tesla had, uh, it took a little time for this to happen, but Volvo and Tesla announced that they are having to do pause on production because of parts components that are stuck, not being able to get through in a timely fashion, causing causing delays. Um, uh, fast movie consumer goods, you know, if you need your stuff fast, you, you need to have a more agile supply chain. Uh, and agriculture, a lot of agriculture flows through the, Pan- through the, well, actually through both the Panama Canal and the Red Sea. And then uh, one item I'd point out that is less obvious on people's minds, the humanitarian aid can't get through as well. So it's another, it's a supply chain we don't think about as often, but Hmm. That's disruptive as well. You know, I'm curious what happens inside a company when suddenly you're confronted with a supply chain disruption like this. You know, say you've been shipping goods through the Red Sea and suddenly you have to spend that extra 10 days to go around Africa or, you know, whatever example you want to use. How do they actually make those decisions around, okay, we're going to, you know, change to this route or continue trying to ship through here, even though there's some risk? Like, what are the calculations that go into that? It's a great question. And I'd say the word of the day is trade-offs. And that's really the word, that's really one word that can encapsulate what supply chains have to do. Because you 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 highlighted it very well. You have to think about, okay, so one of the things that companies are looking at through the Panama Canal is there's a land route you can take. It's cumbersome for all kinds of reasons, but at what point does that become a viable alternative better than the delays you face getting through the canal itself. And so you have to look at things like um, what will be the impact on my end customers? How late How late will this make my order to them? Uh, how much cost will it add? And do I absorb the cost myself? Do I pass it on to my customer? Uh, what is the environmental impact? And that's increasingly a factor that supply chains have to think about. Uh, what's the, If I switch to an alternate supplier, which I might think about doing, what is the impact of that shift? So is that alternate supplier, and I'm ba- making this up to be simplistic here, maybe they can get something to me on time, but it costs a whole lot more. Or maybe mm. this supplier is known, I've had reliability issues with the quality of their goods in the past, so I've, I've steered away from them. Is a uh, less reliable or lower quality 
issue. Maybe maybe 95 parts out of 100 are good, but there's still five parts that aren't. That's a cost to you. What do you do with that cost? What does that do to your production? Uh, and I could keep going, but those are just some examples. And so you're yeah. having to look at those trade-offs and say, for your company, what are the metrics that matter most? And how do you understand that impact across your whole company and not just in one silo? What would be like a good example, if we wanted to look at like a business, maybe specific to an industry, like what would be a good industry to kind of tease apart an example of like, okay, am I making like chocolate bars or am I making cute tops or am I making cars? Like what's a good, if we can maybe walk through like how an individual business would look at, I guess, a specific disruption and like how you help guide them through that. Sure. So uh, there's an example I like to give when I'm talking to students about the automotive industry and, and, and the, the cycles it went through during the pandemic in particular. Because what we, if, we, if we dial our, our brains back to those early days of the pandemic, before it was hitting, uh, hitting us here in North America, we were hearing words like Wuhan, Wuhan, China, which was not a household name at the time, but it's the Detroit or the Windsor of China. It's a heavy automotive sector. And so when the pandemic hit there, manufacturing slowed down at those plants considerably because, of course, people couldn't, couldn't get to work. And so then parts were not being able to reach the automotive uh, manufacturers in the, in, in the U.S. and Canada, for example. And then they were having shortages of cars. But then at the same time, demand dropped right away for cars because people weren't driving because they were in lockdown at home. And then what happened is things... Uh, Things started to open up a little bit. People started traveling again. Demand for cars went through the roof because there was all this pent-up demand that had not been uh, you know, acted upon. People weren't buying cars for over, over a year. And then at that point, the, sh- the problem in automotive had shifted from one of parts in general to a particular focus on the semiconductor industry, which uh, making the chips that go in all our cars. And this has a relationship to high-tech sector. So what happened during the pandemic is when people were working from home, Buying more laptops, buying more video games, buying more any 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 high tech you know consumer electronics devices that drove up demand for chips. Those industries shifted what they made; they were less available for automotive chips, which are a different kind of chip. And so, chip shortages caused delays in automotive. So that's sort of a rippling effect of the pandemic across both demand and supply to show you how even one industry, high tech, affects another automotive. Hmm. When you're talking about that ripple effect, it seems like that's going to take some time to unfold before you know the consumer feels the impact of that when they actually go to say buy a car how long uh does it usually take for disruptions in a supply chain like for example you know the fact that the panama canal capacity has dropped or that people aren't shipping through the red sea how long does it take before consumers start to feel that impact usually It's a great question. There's not a single answer, but I can tell you it can happen pretty quickly. So last December, for example, there was a labor strike at a sugar, uh, some sugar manufacturers in Western Canada, I think it was BC. And because of that, there was literally a shortage of sugar availability right around the holidays when a lot of people are making, making and baking extra things. And so Mm. there were crazy stories of people like bakeries, not just home cooks, but bakeries that produce things that people buy. Uh, because they don't want to make it at home for whatever reasons so and make it scale that we're like having to drive across the border and trying to find enough sugar. So that happened very, very quickly. Uh, it can take longer, uh, as you point out, to, to, to ripple through. But with the Red Sea rebels, that just started emerging in uh, late last year. And uh, as I said earlier this year, already Volvo and Tesla announced that they were having production delays. And some of that is because in automotive is an example of an industry 
that relies heavily on what we call just-in-time manufacturing. And so it's mm. this idea that we don't want to hold any more parts. You know, let's make it simple here, a steering wheel. We don't have any more steering wheels on hand than we need before we need steering wheels. And so let's wait until the last minute. Gross oversimplification, but just to illustrate the point. Uh, so when there are delays, it doesn't take that long before an automotive manufacturer doesn't have enough steering wheels to make production. Hmm. Are companies changing, you know, given everything that's happened in the past four years, are companies changing their attitude towards things like just-in-time manufacturing? Like, how are they changing their own processes to make them less vulnerable to disruptions like this? Great question. We're certainly seeing tons of interest in that from, from companies saying, we need help and we need help now. And that's what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. I can tell you that there have been some shifts even since then. So the, the first shift was, as one chief, retired chief supply chain officer told me, for a while, cost didn't matter. And what, what he meant by that is we were just trying to keep our supply chains up and running at all. We were going to spend what it took to keep within reason, you know, but spend what it, we, were, we weren't worried about cost. We were just trying to get goods to people because people needed goods. And, and goods can, be, uh, can seem like something uh, laughable, like if you can't get your toilet paper or there was, I remember there was some story about some uh, unusual demand patterns around a particular variety of nacho chip that was very specifically <laughs> desired in Canada. What I mean by that is that the demand patterns were such that this was very popular and it was a major, I don't remember which manufacturer it was, but it was one of the big names. But it was a particular demand pattern in Canada and Canadians couldn't get their whatever the special flavor was. Uh, it must have been a ketchup nacho chip. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. And and it was because what, what happened is there was what, what's sometimes called skew rationalization. So skew meaning stock keeping unit. If you don't have enough stuff, you don't have enough workers, you don't have enough of anything, you're going to say, okay, let's not make 37 varieties of nacho chips. Let's get down to you know five. And mm. the Canadian favorite uh, falls off the list temporarily. And then what's happened is consumers have expectations now. They want their stuff again. They want their chips. They want their goods. They want their price uh, to, be, to be reasonable. Uh, and so companies are having to look back again, okay, let's make more stuff to, to have competitive advantage and achieve our customers, but we also have to look at how do we do this at a reasonable cost because we're in an inflationary environment with high interest rates, which means running a business is more expensive. So that's a challenge. And then sustainability is increasingly an issue. So we have to pay attention to what do we do about sustainability. So I'm telling you a long answer, answer Taylor, of the challenges supply chains face. What they're trying to do is to say, and these are all issues on the table, we have to figure out how to do this better. And we need better transparency. We need our supply chain to be connected. Trying to do things in isolation, you know, maybe I order enough stuff for the plant to have it, but the stuff I order that can get to the plant in time is low quality and it causes unhappy customers. You know, we have to look at those tra- all those trade-offs. Hmm. When you say transparency, what does that mean when it comes to supply chains? So one of the big buzzwords going around in the early days of the pandemic was this idea that supply chains need greater visibility. And so automotive is a good example of... Uh, I buy my parts from pers- you know company A that gets their subcomponents from company B, which gets their subcomponents from company C. And so by the time you, you drill this all the way down, you literally may have a supply chain that is four or five tiers deep is what it's called. And it's, it's virtually impossible for even buying one from company A to know all the way down to tier four, tier five, who, are they, who mm. they're getting their stuff from. Because there's a competitive reasons why suppliers often don't want to say who their other customers are. And so if you don't know that, you may not know all, all what's happening. You may not have visibility into 
is that company on the verge? Because it doesn't take that far into that supply chain before you start dealing with more mom and pop, smaller companies that are more vulnerable to disruption. And so visibility is about saying, I need to know what's happening where, but transparency is really deeper. And so to give you an example of what I mean by that, several years ago, there was a boat stuck in the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal is getting a lot of attention these days, but it was called the Ever Given, and it was literally stuck in the canal. And the way I describe visibility versus transparency is visibility might give you a fancy IoT sensor on a container on that ship, pinging you saying, Taylor, my stu- your stuff is stuck on that boat. And if, it keep- if you keep getting pings that say, yeah, Taylor, your stuff is still stuck on that boat, that doesn't really help you a lot because you can just wring your hands and say, oh my goodness, my stuff is stuck in the boat. What am I going to do? Transparency is about saying, okay, the stuff that's stuck on that boat, it's going to affect these production lines. So you have to think about staffing and labor and supplies and what else do I do? It's going to affect these customers. It's going to affect these inventories. And then you're going to start running scenarios to say, okay, if that stuff is stuck six hours, what do I do? What if it's stuck six days? What if it's stuck six weeks or six months? At the time, we literally did not know how long it would be. And so you have to run scenarios and say, let's have a a library of choices where I've weighed all those trade-offs. I've figured out what my best options are, and I'm ready to pull one of those scenarios off the shelf once we land on it 7.3 days, and that this is what I'm going to do now. Hmm. Interesting. I find and that's transparency, is really understanding that impact across your whole supply chain, not just, you know, when's the stuff going to arrive in a port. I, I want to pick up on your point about kind of like the sub uh, the sub suppliers almost, because the... I mean, people will know this story now because the Canadian government recently launched um, like a a number of probes into kind of various retailers that have allegedly not removed forced labor from their supply chains. There's a lot of big names in that probe. It's Walmart, it's Ralph Lauren, it's Hugo Boss, it's a bunch of clothing retailers. And when you say that, you know, it's difficult to get visibility into those subcontractors or sorry, those sub suppliers, it's easier for oversights like that to happen. Is that part of the explanation as to why you know, you see a headline like that and you're like, well, how could a company that big not understand like where their stuff is coming from? Absolutely. There, there are several things. So one, one, one thing is when you just said that the visibility is not, it, it, it's hard to get if you're buying something from, from supplier A to you, who they buy, buy from may not be obvious to you and they may not be willing to share it. That's one thing. A second thing that happens is that in the Early days of the pandemic, when there was a lot of, of sense that uh, we're too vulnerable on China, we see what happens when China hardest hit, earliest hit, production shut down. All the companies that were getting things from China were sa- suddenly saying, I'm too vulnerable getting all this stuff from China, so I'm going to source from somewhere else. Well, what fairly quickly became apparent is that whether you went to Vietnam, the Philippines, or even potentially Bangladesh or Mexico, or Africa, you may still be buying something that's owned by a Chinese company that is physically placed in, say, Vietnam. And so mm. some of those issues that you're trying to, to kind of uh, avoid, you may not, it may be that there's still issues that weren't apparent to you, like, like Uyghur, Uyghur labor or something, something like that. And then the third thing is that um, it's really hard to get the data, like just pure and simple, the the data, one of the issues around sustainability. So when we think about supply chain and sustainability, on average, 80% of a company's uh, carbon emissions footprint is in its supply chain. So what that means is don't picture smokestacks in your head or even the power to run the smokestacks when you think about making something. Think about everything it took to get all the stuff into the factory before it could actually start making things. 
And that's where we're getting into all those tiers of suppliers and where they come from. When they literally start, as a former colleague of mine used to say, when stuff starts from a hole in the ground, like you're mining raw materials. So getting it from wherever it started in its raw state to where we're actually assembling it uh, takes a lot of manufacturing, trucks, ships, planes uh, to move it. And trying to get the data on all of that, whether it be measuring your carbon emissions or your uh, your human rights abuses in the supply chain, that's that's a very challenging problem. Is there um, does is there a clear sense of like how much transport drives the cost of things? Because I like I have friends that live in really remote places, and like I'll be on the phone, and they're like, "Oh, my Amazon package just came." The day after I order something and it's something ridiculous, like a lemon squeezer. And, you know, I'm like, how much did you pay for that? They're like, oh, like $10, dollars $10. It's like, how is it that it costs $9 to make this thing for you, get it on a truck, bring it to you? And I always wonder like how, how that even breaks down and, and uh, if, if there's a way to even unpack like how much transport drives the cost of things given that it's, um, given that it's such a big piece of the picture. Yeah, you raised a great question. I was uh, having a conversation with uh, earlier this week on the relationship between supply chain and marketing. And where this comes in here is that one of the things that uh, customer expectations were elevated after the pandemic, because once people got used to getting things at home because they were used to going and getting them at the store, not everything has stuck like people thought, but ordering, ordering at home has, uh, for many things, has stayed as a, as a pattern. But that's costly to deliver. And especially as we move not just from those customer expectations, but this idea of many companies that didn't used to sell direct to consumer, selling directly to the consumer. And so when you do that, it changes all kinds of things. So here's something you don't think about in terms of that transportation. Uh, we don't, if you're shipping to a store, you're not going to ship one toothbrush uh, or one lemon, lemon, uh, lemon squeezer. You're going to ship a pallet of them. Uh, and the lot size and the pallet, meaning how many lemon squeezers are on that pallet, uh, might be, I don't know, making this up, 100 lemon squeezers on the pallet. And if you need fewer than 100 lemon squeezers, well, they're going to come in pallets of 100, so you're just going to get 100. If you're shipping to Sarah, you're getting you're shipping one lemon squeezer. Uh, and so companies have to weigh those trade-offs of, is it worth it to me to try to get Sarah as my customer by spending that money? to get the one lemon squeezer to Sarah and how am I going to manage all my channels? What do I sell in store versus versus online? Uh, those are difficult questions and there's no simple answer. It's going to depend on the company, their business strategy. But the point that it does illustrate is that supply chain is a key tool for helping a company realize whatever its business objectives are. Because the answer to that question, how can we get it to the consumer at, at a way that will generate a profit to us is a supply chain question. When, when you were talking about the layers of the supply chain and how deep it goes, it made me think about the conversation about onshoring or nearshoring or friendshoring, whatever you want to call it, that has been going on since uh, COVID. And I'm just wondering how realistic you think that is. You know, when we have five or six layers of suppliers to get a product to our shelves and you know maybe the company at one end has no idea that the company at the other end even exists is it a, is this a real thing like are we really going to be able to uh, onshore some of these supply chains or is this like a, a fantasy great question taylor and it's kind of a both and so we can do some of that in some places uh, for some reasons 
and trying to other ways of addressing that are like strategic stockpiles. So com- countries want to make sure that they have enough PPE, you know, the masks and, and equipment to protect healthcare workers needed it, or semiconductor chips. These are examples of things that countries see as a domestic security concern and they're going to try to do, you know, there's, there's chips acts. Most countries around the world have some kind of, that they've called some variation on the chips act, trying to make sure that those semiconductor chips, which are invaluable to our economies these days are available to their citizens. But you're absolutely right about the fact that untangling a supply chain, and the other second thing I'll say, there's absolutely a trend towards how can I bring stuff closer to me, closer to me to a friendlier supplier or a friendlier region? Uh, how can I um, increase redundancy so I'm not relying on one supplier? All those are drivers for changing the kind of where I get stuff from where. Uh, but the, the challenge in doing so is that uh, there's expertise. So just like Windsor and Detroit are automotive expertise, as well as Guadalajara, Mexico, you can't just decide suddenly you're going to go make uh, – automobiles in Winnipeg because, you know, doesn't need the, the expertise in the town and the, the cluster of sort of other suppliers. So the suppliers are not, are not there. Same with semiconductor, not easy to, to shift. And even something that seems as simple as, um, uh, I'll give you an example, a, a motorcycle. There was a story from, from many years ago of a motorcycle that had, a motorcycle may seem like a, a simpler piece of equipment compared to a semiconductor chip, but uh, supposedly this motorcycle was assembled in one country, but the brakes and the clutch came from Italy. Like, say, the electronic components might have come from, say, Mexico and China. Another part can come from Japan. Another part come from Austria. And what you've heard me just say here, these are not low-cost destinations. You know, mm, Japan, Austria, no. Italy, not. So they weren't, they weren't going there because the parts were cheaper. They're going there because there's specialization built up in those countries in certain parts, whether it be pistons or brakes or suspension. And so trying to bring all that home is a lot more complicated than it, than it seems. Yeah. Are, are you seeing companies make investments in trying to do that? You know, let's put stuff like semiconductors, put the ultra complex stuff or strategic stuff aside. Are you seeing just sort of, you know, run of the mill companies uh, taking on more costs in order to make their supply chains more durable? Absolutely. They, they are, and they're looking at wh- when and where and how can I do this. And so it, it's also a matter of the trade-off. And so you may, the, the notion of resilience in a supply chain is, is the idea that we can keep making stuff even if there's a disruption. So it may be worth it and ultimately cost-wise be better to pay a little bit more for a part from a location that seems more secure or I'm buying it from two locations. So even if one location is disrupted, the other location mm. is not disrupted. And therefore, I can be sure to, to get my, my materials. So again, it's, what we're seeing is a complexity of let's, let's increase resilience where we can by adding suppliers, making them closer to, closer to home, um, investing in other, in other locations. Another example of security is that uh, several years uh, ago, uh, our customer Mars, who makes candy, decided that, uh, or among other things, they make kind of confectionery goods, uh, they sourced palm oil from 1,500 palm oil suppliers. And they wanted to have a closer eye on the sustainability that he wanted to uh, engage in deforestation. And so they thought, okay, if we shift to 100 suppliers instead of 1,500, we can have a closer relationship with them. We can monitor them. We can invest in them so we can increase their sustainability. 
So while that example may all be from one country, what it illustrates is if you have a closer relationship with, with fewer suppliers, you can actually potentially have more uh, transparency into what's happening, invest where you need to, et cetera. That's why uh, some, mm. some like Canada is investing heavily in trying to build an EV battery market. Uh, companies like uh, some of the automotive companies are deciding to make the EV batteries themselves or partner with others who make them, you know, one uh, concept known as vertical integration. So all kinds of things are being tried to get at the objective you're mentioning, Taylor. I have a question, I guess, big picture. And it's that, do you think that supply chains with these investments and in resiliency, do you think they'll, they'll return back to kind of the level of, levels of stability that we saw pre-pandemic? I don't think so. And I don't mean that to sound, maybe, maybe the answer is to say that stability is not the the right word anymore, because what's changing so much is that uh, we, we live in a fast-moving, dynamic, ever-more-changing world. And so the geopolitics we're seeing in the Red Sea, the drought from climate change that's impacting the Panama Canal, uh, there are uh, issues with um, certain suppliers going down, like all of these you know, inflationary times impacting uh, the ability to hold on to inventory. All of these are factors that that start to be so interconnected because we live in a global supply chain that disruptions just continue, and, and we're seeing them on the on the increase because we have more complex global supply chains. So even if we try to increase the domestic security, we still have complexity because if you suddenly if you've gone from one supplier to two because you're trying to diversify and, and increase redundancy so that you have more resilience, you've just added, you've doubled your number in that simple example, you've doubled your number of suppliers. And that adds to complexity, although it may increase resilience. So long way of saying that that we don't anticipate that changing. Uh, we might have thought, we, if things were going to settle down, we might have thought they would have by now, but they're, they're not. So uh, listening to uh, Jerome Powell talking yesterday, uh, I heard him mention a couple times that he thought that there was still some inflationary effects to come out of supply chains still left over from mm-hmm. pandemic. Uh, do you think that's that's true? Like, do we still have inflation that's being driven by supply chain issues stemming from that period in time? Absolutely. Supply chains have just, again, it, supply chains function similarly, but each one is is... It is different. But what we've seen is that the disruptions affect in different ways, like I illustrated with the automotive example earlier. But what we're, what we're seeing a lot of in supply chains these days is companies that had higher demand than usual during the pandemic, whether it be that you made puzzles or bicycles or consumer electronics or I'm trying to think building materials. I mean, all kinds of wildly variable things had big increases in demand that were driven by people staying at home then did all kinds of things like ramp up their production in order to increase, you know, invested more to be able to make more. Like it wasn't just an overnight, let's make more tomorrow than we made today. It's making bigger investments to be able to make more at scale. And then they made more stuff. And then demand has fallen in many of those uh, cases. People bought all the cars they needed to buy or people bought all the chips or bicycles or puzzles or whatever the case may be. And so when demand goes down, then companies are sitting on both the infrastructure they built up as well as literally the inventory. And so what we're seeing right now is inflation because we have a, we're in a high interest rate, high inflationary environment. That means holding on to that extra inventory 
costs you. Like literally see a dollar sign on that inventory. Mm. It's costing you money. Your cash is tied up in that inventory. You don't want to sit on any more than you have to. And yet these companies are sitting on excess inventory. So it's producing all kinds of behavior that is expensive for those companies. And it's a, it's a, it's a over, it's a hangover from COVID. Uh, when it comes to technology, you know, aside from physically moving factories and production into, you know, closer territory, are there any technologies that uh, you see companies deploying that are, you know, making supply chains more durable or function smoother? What's what's happening on that front? Absolutely. So one thing that we're seeing is companies saying, you would be surprised at the number of companies still running their supply chains on spreadsheets. Not a great mm. way to run a uh, <laughs> supply chain because it's uh, supply chains, these spreadsheets are great for, you know, your home budgeting, uh, but they're not great to scale for, for a large company. But you would be surprised at the number of large companies. They're realizing that's not viable anymore because it's not durable, it's not resilient. And so they're investing in, okay, how do I that transparency depends on the ability to know what's happening across my supply chain at once. So I can make a decision that says, okay, if I choose this supplier, what's going to be the impact on production, demand, inventory, uh, distribution, all of that. You need to know that all at once. So you have to have a connected modern supply chain and dealing, you know, we, we did a survey with um, the boom, the global committee for women in supply chain. And they found a majority of, Workers in supply chains said that they were dealing with fragmented legacy technologies, which, mm. which sometimes leads to what's called the swivel chair effect. Like literally imagine yourself in a swivel chair, swiveling between this application to do this task, that application to do that task, this application for this spreadsheet, and, and it frustrates employees. And so companies are investing in trying to say, let's give ourselves a modern infrastructure that can, that can connect the, the parts of our supply chain into one whole so we can have a concurrent view everything all at once. That's one thing. The second thing is AI. There's been a huge interest in AI for all kinds of reasons. Some of it is with the increased pressures on trying to, supply chains are hard, as I've just hopefully painted a, a quite clear picture of. Uh, we need anything we can do to help us get more competitive advantage, more insight. Uh, AI can do that in all kinds of ways. We can. There's a labor shortage going on right now for demographic reasons, for uh, people not returning to the workforce, all kinds of reasons. So there are not enough workers, whether it be taking stuff off the ship or making supply chain planning decisions and doing a statistical forecast. Workers across the board are shorter. So we need tools that can help us automate the things that are obvious, update things so planners are not having to make mundane decisions themselves, automate things in a warehouse off coming off a ship. We want to automate all of that and get better intelligence to give our supply chains even more granular and accurate and precise responses. So absolutely huge interest in technology. I have a couple quick questions that are kind of rooted in newsy headlines. And Paul, you're going to have to let me know if these are ridiculous, but they've come up uh, in my brain as we've been talking. And one is about ports. And we've been talking a little bit about transparency. And it hit me that people are talking a lot about the Port of Montreal specifically because of some criminal activity that's going on there. We're seeing record car thefts and kind of this access point is being seen as the port of Montreal and hundreds and hundreds of cars are kind of getting loaded onto ships and mm -hmm. shipped off to different places. And I'm kind of wondering, like in this conversation of transparency, people wonder, well, how do you not catch that? How do you not know that that's happening? Why is that so difficult to track? And maybe I can pose that question to you. Like, why is something like that difficult to track? Is that a fair supply chain question? It is. And, and one way I'll illustrate that is something that really struck me at the in the early days of the pandemic, 
we were having all these issues at ports. And so you might remember seeing the pictures of ports with uh, ships out at the sea because they couldn't get into the port. And so oh, yeah. Yeah. it was a complex situation that had, again, these rippling effects. So there were too many boats that couldn't get into the shipyards. There were not enough workers, the longshoremen, the dock, the dock workers to take stuff off the boats. There were not enough people that could drive the trucks to get the stuff from the off the boats, onto the trucks, and then out to to wherever they're trying to go. I remember during those days, uh, one of our customers told me that he found, in the days when everybody was delighted that they could find the stuff they needed, the raw material or the end goods, he found the stuff he needed at a factory in North Carolina. He traced it all the way there. And there was literally that company, that supplier had no nobody to drive a truck to get it to him. And so the problem is, there's no instant system that can give you visibility into all those steps because those are pretty disconnected uh, steps there. And so when you're when you're looking at a port, crime, uh, dock workers, uh, truckers, yeah, what are delays from other things that might not immediately seem like a supply chain issue? That's the challenges we're dealing with. These systems that should be tightly interconnected, and they are in reality, but the ability to get data and information about what's happening is is not easy. And are some of the technological advancements that you've talked about, about getting away from these kind of more archaic record-keeping systems, does that signal that we're moving towards a system that looks like that? Or are supply chains for the near future likely to kind of still be pretty opaque? They uh, they are. Uh, the what, what these capabilities are giving us is the ability to increasingly see. So I'll give you one example. I, I, like, to, I like to tell this story about one of our customers who makes drugs for rare diseases, oncology, and neurology. And during the pandemic, they prior to the pandemic starting, they had a goal of having zero stockouts. Because if you run out of toilet paper, we can all make potty jokes. But if you run out of a drug for somebody's rare disease, then it could be a life and death situation for that person. So they had a goal of zero stockouts. Then the pandemic hit. And they had the same problems everybody else did. They had uh, workers at their own uh, manufacturing facilities that you know couldn't get to work. They had border delays. They had transportation issues, and they ended up achieving their goal of zero stockouts. And the way they did this is because they had greater transparency. They were able to look across their whole supply chain network and say, "Okay, in this country, we have more inventory than we needed. The demand for that drug. Oh, and I forgot to mention a key fact here: they had seventy percent demand spikes." And so things we used to rely on that in, in that business, you don't expect uh, a spike in drugs for rare diseases because that should be a pretty steady state, right? But doctors were worried their patients wouldn't have access to the drugs, so they were increasing the prescription. Mm. So they had this very unexpected disruption, the pandemic plus the demand spikes. So what they did is they looked across there where they, had, where they make stuff and where they had stuff and where they want, people wanted to buy their stuff. And they were able to just reposition inventory. Okay, it's down in this country where where we need we have more demand. We can move it from this country where we have more inventory that's needed. And they just simply moved inventory around because they could look across their network. That's a technology innovation. Just from being able to see what's where when and how much of it, they were able to achieve a pretty remarkable goal of no stockouts in spite of pandemic level disruptions and 70% demand spike. So it is possible to achieve better results if you if you implement a modern connected supply chain. Very cool. And one more newsy question for me. Uh, the, the cost of, of groceries is something that is certainly on Canadians' minds, and it's something that everyone can speculate a lot about in terms of what's driving that. I wonder if there's like a supply chain answer to that question about, because Canadian goods, it is 
uh, Canadian food specifically, it is like a miracle that it's like the middle of winter and the grocery stores are stocked and, you know, you have, you know, fresh-ish lettuce and, and you know, there's there's really no shortages of anything. Um, and, you know, you hear about how that kind of impacts the cost of food. I'm wondering what is the supply chain maybe answer, if there is, about the cost of food generally in regions like ours, in geographies like ours that span so much space and this food is traveling so far. Um, how do you think about grocery and grocery costs specifically from like a supply chain's perspective? Absolutely. Well, that's there's a very interesting question and one with multiple implications. So one is grocery is famously a low margin business, meaning that uh, they don't have a whole lot of, of razor edge there to, to play with when there's when the grocery store itself, the retailer, faces increased costs from its suppliers. So that's one issue. You're going to feel those, the impact of any disruption quicker in, in a grocery environment. Uh, second is that agriculture is a just sector that was disrupted heavily by the war in Ukraine and continues to be. Uh, the, a lot of agriculture moves through these canals. And so food, agriculture feeds foodstuffs, which you know end up uh, in, into foods that, that we want to buy at the store. Uh, and then thirdly, if we think back to those stories we often tell if you if you celebrate Christmas around like the idea of having an orange in your stocking. And the reason that comes is because there was a time when you couldn't get oranges at Christmas. And so it was a really big deal if you could get them. You might get one orange in your stocking at Christmas. Well, today, as you point out, you can get uh, anything pretty much anytime from anywhere. But that's because we have a global supply chain. So you're going to get, you know, we, we use the hemispheres to our advantage. You might get your apples from South America at some times of the year, and other times of the year, you're going to get them in Canada. But that's because the global supply chain is moving them around, and and, and it, it, it makes things more complex, but it's not as obvious as you might think. So I read an example of flower delivery in Boston. It was cheaper for to get flowers from South America to Boston in the winter than to grow flowers in greenhouses in Boston in the winter. So the same thing would apply in Canada. And so we're having a look at those trade-off decisions of it may seem obvious. Well, surely we should just build greenhouses and grow them locally. But the answer is actually no, it's cheaper to, to import them from far distances. But what implication does that have for sustainability? So we have complex trade-off questions in supply chain. So interesting. Uh, last question for me, but I'm curious what your view is on what are some of the risks that people should be looking out for uh, when it comes to supply chains in the future? You know, some of these things are obviously hard to to predict because it's geopolitics and who knows what's going to happen. But, you know, when you're looking out over the next couple of years, what do you see as the, the big risks? Geopolitics is one. And as you point out, that can't be predicted other than the fact that it appears, it certainly appears that the world is in a more complex, more volatile place with geopolitics than, than it has been in, in times past. Climate change is, is one that continues to be a factor. I said earlier that 80% of a company's emissions are in its supply chain, so supply chains contribute to climate change. Supply chains are also heavily impacted by supply chains. And so uh, the Panama Canal is an example of climate change is impacting the ability to pass goods through through there because of supply chain. So climate change is a, is a big issue, uh, and that impacts sustainability. Uh, it is increasingly a consideration for supply chains. And then one that I think gets less attention is the labor shortage. And that's that's a complex issue that uh, that, that con company countries don't have enough, uh, many Western countries do not have enough workers. And again, it's at all levels. It's whether it be uh, high-skilled, highly trained, highly experienced supply chain planning employees, for example, 
are in a shortage as well as pickers and packers and people on the front lines, dock workers, et cetera. And so that labor shortage is a demographic thing. It's not going to be filled tomorrow or next week. And so because that's a big demographic shift, baby boomers retiring, et cetera, we're going to have to figure out how to run supply chains differently because we don't have enough people where we need them to do that. And that's where AI comes in. That's my final sort of trend I'll throw in there, that, that there's a lot of promise being seen in AI as an ability to increase productivity and help us get more done more efficiently and effectively. I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much for coming on, Polly. Yeah, that was great. Glad to be here. Thanks for asking great questions. Okay, well, that was a super interesting episode on supply chains. They still kind of feel like magic to me, but I don't know. What did you take away from that conversation? Mm. Yeah, well, they're so complicated, I think, is the, <laughs> one, you know, one of my main takeaways is that there's so many layers to this that it's really hard to understand, especially as an outsider, what's really going on. And it sounds like it's even hard for the businesses that depend on them to understand the people in it. exactly what's going on as well. But it was interesting to me to hear that so many companies are still relying on like spreadsheets to the, the track these global things. Global shipping ecosystem. Yeah, it's no it's surprise. It's <laughs> so fragile <laughs> when it depends on like getting the formula and Excel right. I can see why and all uh, it takes break to down. give you that edge is just... <laughs> get like an updated software that yeah. can help you manage This is it. so classic though. Like we, you see this in industry after industry where it's like just using old, like using fax machines and stuff like that. Well, it just sounds like if anything, the last few years have kind of forced the industry for a bit of an update. So right. I wonder, I mean, as, but again, there's so many kind of things that go into it that it's difficult to see whether as a consumer you would ever feel the benefits of that, but it does seem like the industry is modernizing, not because it wants to, but because it has to. Right. And um, yeah, as far as companies actually just like building things, I think closer to home. I mean, it's interesting that Polly brings up the example of the EV factories that are kind of popping up too, because we're kind of seeing like the building of this new supply chain in action and, and hopefully one that I guess people hope is is going to give that kind of steady flow of EV kind of battery supplies kind of closer to home, which is interesting just to kind of watch a full supply chain kind of being built kind of in our backyards. Yeah, totally. I mean, just watching what's happened with the stuff in the Red Sea and, you know, you have to think about the fact that the Houthi rebels are not, you know, it's not like a big group of people like it's not a sophisticated mm -hmm. military or anything like that and the amount of damage and disruption that they're able to inflict on no oil the no way that, oil yeah, for it, you america yeah it, it it is sort of it raises concerns i think and I, I feel like that's kind of been the story of the last three or four years of just really seeing what the effect is of having a really really tight global supply chain without much slack in it you know it is pretty vulnerable to disruptions like this 100 percent. well should we leave it there i think so this has been another episode of free lunch by the peak you can subscribe to this podcast on our profile you can find other episodes just like this also on our profile with lots and lots of topics uh with experts across a range of industries in business economics and policy. Uh, and if you have time, please rate and review this podcast. It really, really helps us grow the show. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week. Bye.